is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today, I welcome Alex Lazaro to the show. Alex and I are going to talk about how the world of innovation needs a refresh. Hey, Alex, thanks for being with me today. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. So you're welcome. You're welcome. So you wrote this awesome new book that I've absolutely devoured called Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. So unpack this for me, right? Because for decades, people have focused on Silicon Valley as the center of innovation. And you've got a new premise. Tell us what's happening. What's cooking here? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think historically, that's totally right, where innovation ecosystems for startups were highly concentrated in a small number of locations. That's changed. A couple of things have caused that. One is because of new technology, you can now start a startup anywhere. Things like Amazon Web Services let you rent a supercomputer by the hour instead of having to invest in uh, servers. Um, venture capital is now supporting companies more internationally than ever before. And the culture of entrepreneurship has become more and more global. And so as a result, today there's about 1.3 million startups around the world. These are not small businesses, but truly innovative startups across 480 startup ecosystems. And so that's kind of what's happened is that the world of innovation has shifted. It's no longer been unicentric around Silicon Valley. And today, innovation has proliferated everywhere. And yet, Everything we think about startup best practice is rooted in a time and a place, Silicon Valley and today. And for a very particular type of asset light, software-based company that wants to grow extraordinarily fast. The challenge is, is that around the world, the context is different. Ecosystems around the world might have less capital, less depth of trained startup human capital, or might face macroeconomic shocks. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs operating in Delhi or Chicago or Detroit or Amsterdam or Nairobi have more in common with the best entrepreneurs operating in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet no one is telling their stories. And so I decided I would. And so I interviewed about 200 entrepreneurs from around the world, a feature about six of them in the book. And I set up the book a little bit where there's conventional wisdom around what's happening in the Valley and where I think that there is a massive paradigm shift where that conventional wisdom is proving incorrect. And in many ways, the new best practice of startups around the world is coming from these leading entrepreneurs. So let's talk about this from your vantage point, because you are a venture capitalist. You've been teaching at Middlebury and helping students launch their startups in, in their hometowns, right? So from that lens, how do you want to impact this new world of, of entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah, L let me tell you why I wrote the book, because I think that'll help answer the question. You know, Good. by day... Like you mentioned, I'm a venture capitalist. I invest in startups around the world. Um, and outside of work, I've been teaching this MBA class. And uh, a lot of my students at Middlebury Institute for International Studies were, you know, like me, they come from the Midwest or they're going to an emerging market to launch their company. And I always felt like what I was sharing with them were books on how to grow really quickly as a startup or how to build a team, but everything was so context specific. And 
the reason I wrote the book and where I'm going with it is I want to start a conversation. I wanted to share something with my students, but also when working with the entrepreneurs I serve to really share best practice around what's what's working and what's succeeding in ecosystems around the world. Like obviously the rest of the world is very different and nuanced, right? There's, I, I describe the phenomenon, this idea of the frontier where you have ecosystems like Silicon Valley. And I say, look, they operate in a developed world in a developed startup ecosystem. The book brings you to places as far as Pyongyang, where developing startup ecosystem, to say the least, and developing market. But everywhere in between with um, some that are in Bangalore, like developed uh, startup ecosystem, developing market, um, et cetera. And so I actually think that by understanding the contrasts, but also some of the nuances, we can peel apart. And ultimately, I think the book is a little bit more like a, a menu than a recipe book. It isn't do A, B, C, or D, and then you'll get the result is much more, you know, understand what's happening elsewhere, take what's relevant to you, apply it. If it doesn't work, then that's okay. The context is different too, but it's really to start that conversation about what it takes to succeed in every context. And I really appreciated that menu approach because I, I firmly believe that entrepreneurism does not exist in a one size fits all model. And I want to talk about something you, you write about this so eloquently in the book, you you talk about the Valley of death model in Silicon Valley is this approach to building startups where growth is prioritized over profit. So tell me more about that because, um, you know, the reality is that many startups don't have to, and in fact, shouldn't take this approach. So why not? Yeah, absolutely. In the, in Silicon Valley, I think we have this model of chasing the unicorn and the unicorn is both a numerical value, a company that's worth a billion dollars, but it's also this philosophy. And if yeah. that's the philosophy, the method is growth at any cost. And so it's okay to have unsustainable unit economics in service of growth. It's okay to offer a product for free in service of more users. And it's okay to hire a ton of people in service of providing more revenue. And the result is you get this value of death. Every startup has it, right? Where you have a revenue line that's small at the beginning, it grows over time, and you are investing into building a business. The reality is in the Silicon Valley model, that value of death is deepened, right? You're, you're taking more capital to build the business to jack up the revenue line a little bit more. And the end result, you know, obviously has worked and there's some big businesses that can get built, but those big businesses have been built in that context and in that work, in that world. But I think that around the world, I talk about the camel as the alternate methodology and why do I choose the camel as the animal? You know, for one, it's a real animal. It lives in real lands and it's built for sustainability and resilience. And when there's water, it drinks faster than any other animal on the planet. It can still sprint across the desert, but can also survive. And that's what I think the startups of the future will be built like and the innovators of the future will take as their philosophy. They're going to imbue their business with sustainability and resilience from the get-go. They're obviously still going to try to grow, but they're going to grow with balanced a balanced approach. And that means when good times are there, you can still scale, but you're not too far away from sustainability when you need to be. And you're not getting ahead of yourself too much. You're really building with this camel-like approach. And, and I think that's a lesson that is true for the frontier, but also in today's day and age, equally relevant for the Valley as well. So Alex, you and I are talking at a very unusual time in our world. It, this is not just a, an American phenomenon. This is a worldwide global pandemic. And typically I don't timestamp the show, right? To keep it evergreen. But this is a reality that the entire world is facing simultaneously. And I believe that 
entrepreneurs are no matter what level in their organization, right? Where they're, they're beginning startups or they're, they're more um, fully fledged organizations need to have that resiliency, right? And that av- ability to, to pivot uh, if in the light of unexpected changes. So speak to that, if you will. I realize this happened after your book was released, but gosh, it's caused a necessity for companies to be nimble. Yeah, I, I think it's such a relevant question. You know, I, I wrote the book in a very different context when I was reacting to what I thought was a different ecosystem and an ecosystem where abundance created a certain model. And in many ways, I actually think that around the world, the constraints entrepreneurs operate under actually are disadvantages, but yield advantages. And one of them is building sustainable and resilient businesses. But with that gives you the opportunity to also be nimble and reactionary. I'll give you one example. Um, a business that I interviewed was Qualtrics. It's a company in Salt Lake City. Um, uh, I interviewed Ryan, the CEO, and one of the co-founders. And he talked a lot about their business actually only coming into the big breakthroughs after a dozen years. So yeah. what do they do? They offer surveys originally for universities. So helping the professors understand uh, what their students are thinking, get it, getting feedback, et cetera. They pivoted to the enterprise model. And Ryan talks about how that was their big breakthrough. The company actually didn't take venture capital until well into their journey, well after that breakthrough, right? Well after 12 years. Um, and uh, only after they were a couple billion dollar business, they recently sold SAP for $8 billion. But um, in that story, this ability to take a long-term approach and being sustainable throughout the, the journey gave them the opportunity to both take a long-term view and be... and um, pounce on opportunities when they approached themselves and, and really invest towards them uh, for a while to build a meaningful business. And so I think that's one of the lessons that we'll be able to take away from this. So I, I was in, intrigued in the book too, how you talk about the um, the typical entrepreneur has changed where historically it was white male driven, right? And, and that has changed. Tell us about that. What does that landscape look like? Yeah, I call I call uh, that chapter cross pollinators, and this is a really powerful looking in the mirror moment as well for us in uh, in the U.S. But around the world, when you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, and this is also true of you know outside the valley, I call them cross pollinators. Folks that are um, older, they defy the stereotype of the twenty two year old hoodied warrior that takes takes on a new industry with a new attitude or no, new approach. They're older. They've worked across more industries and functions, and they're tapping on their network and their ecosystem, often from around the world, to bring to bear to their solution, be it capital or team members, et cetera. And, you know, like I mentioned, this is an opportunity for us to look in the mirror as well. The same is true, actually, as it turns out in the Valley, despite the stereotype, but many of the best entrepreneurs are uh, actually older. They have really broad international experiences. They're immigrants, um, et cetera. And that actually is something that actually gives us an opportunity to learn and uh, learn and look in the mirror too. Alex, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. 
We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. So Alex, your book's fascinating to me. I've dog-eared it. I've highlighted it. You know, I'm, I'm writing notes in it as we speak. And I love this concept of the frontier innovators. And you talk about how sometimes they need to build, build the full stack. Tell me more about that. Yeah. One of the realities of building startups and more emerging ecosystems is that there isn't the same enabling infrastructure. There's often a need to do more with less. And what do I mean by the full stack? It's the necessity to build a bunch of infrastructure just to be able to build the ultimate business. I use the example of a business called Guia Bolso in Brazil, which is a mint.com style personal finance manager. Think, you know, one app that gets you a sense of where all your account balances are, how much you're paying on your credit cards, what are some better opportunities for you. Mint, the US business, was able to build an app leveraging Yodli on the back end, which is uh, bank interconnections. There's a ready ecosystem of companies that they could inter- interact with uh, to provide better offerings. There's a credit score. In Brazil, you also had to do everything themselves. So what did they have to do? First, they built the app. But then, unless you wanted garbage in, garbage out, where people are putting in the, their own data, you really have to connect to the bank. So they had to build that interconnection layer themselves. Pipe one bank to another to be able to connect to their bank accounts. But then to be able to make the insights actionable to help their users figure out what to do with uh, with the knowledge of where they're spending money. They actually had to give them a sense of their credit score. Well, there is no credit score in Brazil. There's kind of a blacklist. You're either on it or you're not. There isn't this FICO um, uh, infrastructure that we have in the U.S. And so they had to build something that helped consumers understand their credit worthiness. And then after that, to be able to monetize and to get people to lend on the platform and offer their users better deals and better products that were more suited to their financial needs, they had to build a white label platform and bring people on. So to be able to offer one business, they had to actually build four of them. And obviously that's an extreme example, but the reality is the same in every ecosystem, be it in the Midwest and the US to a more emerging market, that there's a range of things that you have to do to be able to even build your end product. And that actually might sound really daunting. The thing that I find really encouraging about the story, in particular, the case of something like Yoboso and others have had to build this full stack is this is one where constraints also breed advantages. And in this case, I think it's a little bit of a moat where if you had to build all of these things, the mountain is that much harder for you to climb, but it's also that much harder for others to come behind you. And, it's that, and that's one of the reasons that companies that have had to build the full stack have an ability to build more enduring businesses over long term, particularly if they're able to do it in a sustainable way. And, uh, and so that's what I mean by the full stack and why I think it is both a challenge, but in many ways, if done right, also a big opportunity. So Alex, I'm intrigued by what we used to call disruptive innovation, right? The the organizations that were disrupting existing services, right? I think about Uber and all the other rideshare opportunities, Airbnb, right? It just set uh, the hospitality industry on its ear. You are of the mindset that now entrepreneurs are creating new companies that impact existing services, but don't necessarily disrupt. So help us understand the difference there and maybe give us an example. Yeah, absolutely. And the difference isn't just semantics. I think it's fundamental. In the Valley, we have this notion of disrupting. You're either being disrupted or you're disrupting. Where did that come from? That was research from Clayton Christensen, a professor from Harvard Business School, who 
research, not technology startups, but actually um, the steel industry and integrated steel mills were the big business of the day. And there was these nimble new players called mini mills that were coming and nipping at the heels of the low end of the market. And ultimately those mini mills got bigger and bigger and better and better at serving the, servicing the entire market and took, took it away from the integrated mills. And this is in many ways, this modern day David and Goliath story of the small player who's more nimble is able to succeed because they're, be they're able to offer a better product or service. And this has become a little bit of the anthem in Silicon Valley, and that's the attitude and the approach. But it's also the way people think about building businesses is to disrupt things that already exist and are served and doing it better. And that's fine. But I think that what is more powerful is taking a mindset and approach of being a creator. And that's what I think we're seeing at the frontier. So what do I mean by being a creator? Three things. One is offering a product or service that was otherwise not available in the formal economy. Two is targeting the mass market from day one, not, but not the top of the pyramid. And three, often these entrepreneurs are the shoulders upon which others build. They're building the ecosystem at the same time. And what's amazing, there was a study around the unicorns in the U.S. Out of the 300 unicorns in the U.S., less than 18% of them were in high-impact sectors like healthcare, financial services, education, agriculture, and others. If you look at many emerging markets, the number is totally different. In Sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, it's over 60%. Entrepreneurs in many of these ecosystems are doing things in more high-impact solutions, but they're also building a business that is creating an industry. One example uh, is a company called Zola that I open up the book with, which is also essentially offering a home solar system for people that are off-grid in Africa. So there's about 1.2 billion people around the world have no access to power, no electricity, no television, nothing. And so for light, they burn kerosene, literally jet fuel, which has a bunch of negative health consequences, could also burn your house down, uh, the outcomes on education are lower, et cetera. And so what this company did is essentially transform that into a modern lighting experience. A couple uh, solar panels, a battery pack, ch uh, you know, chargers in the house to charge uh, your cell phones, television, radio, and all essentially doing it on a daily, weekly, monthly payment that matched the, the customer's ability to pay, right? Customers were buying kerosene day to day. They didn't have the money to buy a big system, but they could afford a little bit every day. They matched the same thing uh, through their system. Essentially, what they created was a distributed, distributed uh, electrical provider, right? The modern day PG&E for an emerging market and essentially creating that industry. And the reason I think this is so powerful is, look, around the world, obviously in emerging markets, there are these really big gaps, but those gaps exist in the US as well, right? 80 million people have inadequate access to health insurance uh, or no access to health insurance. 60 million people in America have no access or uh, limited access to financial products and services. We have really big challenges. And I think taking this creator's approach and mindset gives us the opportunity to tackle and hopefully solve some of the biggest problems in the U.S. I, I often ask my students, I said, you know, who are, who are asking me, hey, what, what should I do? What kind of topics should I focus on for my business? I say, look, what's important to you? Why are you doing this? Invariably, they always say, look, I really want to make the world a better place. I really want to have impact. I think the way to do that is to take this creator's mindset and to really try to find some of the thorniest problems you can find and look at them with a new lens and try to solve them and build a sustainable business along the way. So that's, that's why I focus so much on it. Oh, I love it. Love it. Love it. So as we wrap up, I want to talk about teams because 
one of the 10 elements of a frontier innovator is to build A teams, not just hire A players. Tell us more about that, right? Because sometimes when uh, organizations are building their teams, you know, they're just thinking about the individual. But I hear you with this collective message. So unpack that for us. Happily. It's interesting. I think teams is one of the critical components for startups. In fact, I think there's three things. One, inspiration. Two, for some businesses, the capital start. And three is getting the right people around the table. And in fact, Teams is the only resource that becomes harder for founders to find over time. As businesses scale, founders generally report that it's easier for them to get capital, particularly as they're building sustainable businesses, but uh, it becomes harder and harder to, to acquire at scale the right team and, and folks you want. And so I believe that around the world, many entrepreneurs are operating ecosystems that might not have um, the same depth of startup trained human capital are taking new ways. I think that talent is distributed evenly, opportunity is not, and there isn't, and not everyone's had the same opportunity as there is uh, in Silicon Valley of working at a bunch of companies. And so that's one of the reasons I think the best entrepreneurs are taking this approach about building a teams of trying to focus on the long term. And so there are a couple of ways that do that. One is around pipeline development. It's looking beyond resumes and thinking about behaviors and outputs. And so one of the case studies I explore is a startup in Lagos, Nigeria, that built a virtual internship to be able to test candidates in, over Slack, over products. And, you know, they started with a list of a thousand candidates, whittled it down to the top 25. Most of those candidates, they would never have met before, but they selected them based on the quality of their work. And so rethinking how you find people, rethinking how you compensate people in Silicon Valley, Stock options are the tried and true approach. It works really well with this growth at all costs mentality. But are there other ways to think about it? I uh, profiled a company that was uh, offering something called Phoenix Flames. The name of the company was Phoenix International, but essentially uh, stock uh, stocks that were restricted, but full stocks. And they gave it to everyone in the company uh, from the uh, lowest employee to the CEO and the whole thing. And they structured it in a totally different way. And three, this philosophy of growing the team over the long term. In the Valley, it's okay to have high churn, right? Google and Uber have average employee uh, retention of less than two years. But if you're operating in a more emerging ecosystem and you've invested into building your team, you have to really build something and a team that is cohesive over the long term. And so there's a big focus on growth and retention over the long term. And so that's this philosophy. And in the book, I talk very tactically around how to do it, but I think the first step is actually have this philosophy of building an A-team, not just hiring the best individual people you can find. Alex, I learned so much from you today. Thank you. I love your book. Let me tell our global audience how they can buy it. Uh, it is called Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. And of course, it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but also at major book retailers. Alex, I wish you great success on this journey. And thank you for spending time with me on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You take good care and be well. And if you like our show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review online because this helps new people find the show. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future podcast. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, 
and Claire McInerney, executive producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening. Whoa.